0: I mentioned back in December that on the first Sunday of Advent, we started the uh, year C of the three-year lectionary calendar, year C. And year C primarily includes gospel readings from Luke's gospel, with other gospel readings interspersed throughout the year, but primarily from Luke's gospel, also from uh, some from John's gospel. I shared with you also that many people, especially people who might initially be less familiar with scripture many people enjoy reading Luke's gospel as a as a way to become more acquainted with the gospel narrative and especially with the life of Jesus. I've talked actually recently in the last week with a few friends about this, people who who have mentioned it to me before. I've talked with them, and I've found that for many of them, it's Luke's flow of writing and the way that Luke tells the story and describes things that can be a little bit more clear for them than reading of the other Gospels. The beauty, though, of having these four Gospels, and when when they were gathering the books of the Bible and the various Gospels were out there, there are several other Gospel narratives. When they were looking at them, they intentionally chose these four to paint a picture that couldn't be painted in just the one. And why is that? It's, it's in part because you're attempting to use words, to describe the mystery of the divine, the mystery of the divine's encounter with humanity. And so it's especially hard to do when the words were being being told in a narrative and then trying to be recorded. They're going to fail in the end to capture everything. So we have these four accounts to provide an attempt at painting the picture of Jesus in multiple dimensions so that we might begin to have a better understanding. So, this is how Luke starts his gospel. In chapter 1, Luke writes, Since many have undertaken to set down an orderly account of the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed on to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of of the word, I too decided, after investigating everything carefully from the very first, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the truth concerning the things about which you have been instructed. That's a long sentence. It's one long sentence. And I'll tell you, in the Greek, it's a very interesting sentence because it is so long, yet Greek is a very mathematic language. Uh, People who like algebra like, uh, like Greek. People who like geometry tend to like Hebrew. It's a little bit um, also very mathematical, but a a little bit more uh, spatial, a little bit more images. So um, this is one long sentence that's laying out in a very Greek style the introduction. A couple things about it I want to point out. You'll notice that Luke is writing to Theophilus, it says, so, who is this, Theophilus? I don't know about you, but when I look at a gospel lesson like this, and, and it's written as though it's written to someone, it makes me want to know, well, who was this? And historians have tried to figure out the answer to that question, who is Theophilus? And many people believed that he was probably uh, a benefactor, someone who was funding the effort of Luke to document the gospel. He couldn't do it on his own. He needed some, some backing. The problem is the historians can't pinpoint and find an exact person who was this Theophilus. Interesting though, the the direct Greek translation of this name, Theo, Theo is is God, and Phyllis or Phylus, Theophilus, means love or one who loves, really. So directly this is a letter to a lover of God, the God lover. Partly because there's no individual that historians can pinpoint that is this Theophilus, scholars have said that Luke probably intended that this letter would be written to any interested reader who wanted to know more about God, perhaps you and me. How interesting it is that 2,000 years ago, Luke was forward-looking enough to be writing to you and me, future God-lovers, lovers of God, people interested in knowing more, of pursuing God. And so, it makes sense then when we hear that people see Luke's gospel as a path to learning more about Jesus, learning more about how God was revealed among humanity. And so, it's also interesting that in that first section, that first sentence of Luke's gospel, Luke makes it so clear in his introductory words that he's not simply telling a story. He's not telling another story about Jesus. He's writing because he wants to make it clear that he's providing what he has found to be an accurate account of Jesus. He's done his work. He says, I have researched this. I have listened. I have done my work, and I'm going to present to you, as orderly as I can, an account of Jesus. Sometimes we think of Scripture as nice words, as as good uh, morals to live by, and for sure they're in there. But really, what Luke is trying to do is to introduce us to God through Jesus Christ. That's powerful to me, and it's compelling to me when it comes to the importance of Scripture in our lives. He's telling his readers that he's investigated carefully in order to write this orderly account so that the reader would know the truth. This is powerful, and it's worth our attention at the outset of this journey of ours alongside Luke. This morning, our gospel text is from a few chapters later, chapter 4. And it's what I would refer to as a beginning text. I love new beginnings. Januaries, we all know, are a time of of new beginnings. And after all the hustle and bustle of the new beginning, right, the hustle and bustle of holidays, of school breaks, of, of New Year's resolutions that might have already faded into the past, there's something quite wonderful about settling in to the time of something new. While sometimes there can be a period of great expectation leading up to it, once we're a few weeks in, especially during this sort of what I would call an in-between time in our lives, right, in-between time of our year, after the new year, but before the next wave of holidays, we're settling back into some of our patterns. In the church, it's the same way, in this time between Epiphany and Lent, This beginning offers something of a breather, a chance to simply be present, to take note of where we are, and also in the church, a time to reflect. Between the birth of Jesus at Christmas and the resurrection, which is coming right around the corner, we can pause, we can breathe, we can reflect about the life of Christ. The text that Mindy read for us is Luke's First account of Jesus after he's grown up and starting his public ministry. It's after uh, he's born, after he has uh, encountered John the Baptist, and then he's baptized. It's after Jesus goes into the desert alone and he's tempted by the devil. This morning's lesson opens with an announcement that Jesus was filled with the power of the Holy Spirit filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. He's he's come out of the desert, out of his time of temptation in the desert, and when he comes back from the desert, he's not just filled with the Holy Spirit. He's filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. And filled with this power, he's going around and he's teaching. He's teaching in the synagogues, and word is spreading about him. There's something different about him that is enough for the word to spread, do you notice that? It's, it's not just that he's preaching and teaching, but something about it is causing it to spread. People are praising him and talking about him. And we have to wonder a little bit there, because Luke doesn't tell us exactly why they are talking about him. We just don't know at this point. But what we know is that Luke tells us that Jesus is filled with the power of the Spirit. And perhaps it is what Jesus is saying in those places, or, or the way he's saying it that indicates that he's filled with this power. We just don't know. But in the midst of our curiosity, Luke tells us that on his travels of teaching, Jesus comes home. He comes to Nazareth. And that's where our text takes place today, At Nazareth, his hometown. What we know about Nazareth, though, is that it wasn't a wealthy place, It was a pretty poor town, a working-class town. Nazareth likely did not even have a building that would have been a synagogue. And so it's interesting, because if, if there's no synagogue, historians say that because it was a poor town, the synagogue was likely an outdoor gathering place. This helps envision the scene a little bit, where Jesus comes into this place. It says it was his custom to do so. He came into this place. And he stands up and he reads from the scroll of the scriptures. He reads from the prophet Isaiah. And he reads portions of Isaiah that were written at a time 500 and something years earlier. A time in Israel's history when there was confusion and unrest. The people had just returned to Jerusalem after the exile and they were very unsettled. There was political discord, new threats against them, and there was economic strife. All in all, they're needing some reassurance. The prophet Isaiah is writing to the people in their time and context and telling them that one will come. One will come one day. One will come one day who will bring good news to the poor, okay, release to the captives, yes, recovery of sight to the blind. We need it. And freedom to all who are oppressed. Please, come. But this reassurance of Isaiah, like so many promises in Scripture, it's not an immediate promise. There's no message that this is coming imminently, immediately, but rather, it becomes it becomes an anticipation, a hope for the people of Israel for the next 500 years. Their longing, it becomes a central longing. It becomes the most central part of their understanding of what it means to be children of God. The longing, the expectation. It's what they pray for daily. It's basically the center of their religion. They're hopeful and filled with anticipation even as they're continuing to experience the strife of their circumstances. And this continues all the way till that time of Jesus, when when the people are then suffering under Roman occupation. They're living in poverty, especially in Nazareth, and individually they're each experiencing all of the emotional and physical maladies that come their way. We understand those things because we experience them. And in all of this, the faithful continue to collectively long for this promised one, this one who will be anointed by God and through the power of the Holy Spirit spirit will bring good news they're waiting and jesus reads this familiar text to them he reads it aloud and he sits down in the jewish custom the one reading the scripture reads the text and then sits down to speak so, up to this point, up to this moment in our text, this was actually quite nor- normal. This was ordinary. It was not, certainly not out of the ordinary. He stood, he read from the Scripture, and he sat down. And then the people looked to him, ready to hear what he has to say. And he speaks. Jesus says, "'Today this Scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing.'" This scripture has been fulfilled. Friends, it's not possible for me to overstate the impact that this statement would have had in that moment to that crowd gathered. This would have truly been about the most significant statement someone could have made to those gathered in the synagogue. He's basically saying all that you've longed for, all that you and your people and your ancestors for generation after generation after generation have longed for, hoped for, waited for, it's me. Here I am. Those people gathered in that space, they must have been blown away. But not just those people gathered in that space, right? because because in that historical observation i mentioned earlier about the synagogue being outside about it not having walls that statement becomes a little more important here you see women for instance would would not have been allowed inside the sanct- the synagogue also, people who would have been seen as social, uh, social outcasts, people on the, on the outskirts of society, people who were not among the regulars that would have been the regular religious. They would have, they would have been around and heard this, this. This Jesus who was coming home, who, who had been having words talked about him in the other places he had been teaching, was here, and he was teaching, and they would have been listening The fringes were within earshot. All could hear, all could hear Jesus saying, I'm the one you've been waiting for. I'm the one who will bring deliverance, healing, and freedom. Jesus, right here, at the beginning of his ministry in Luke's gospel, is setting the scene for the rest of his ministry, for the rest of what will come. He's making it completely clear. This is me. This is who I am. I'm the Messiah. There are different characterizations of this word Messiah in the gospels. We, we talked a little bit about this during Advent, but Luke's description of Jesus is one along the lines of the prophets of the Old Testament. And we're going to see this in the, in the next few weeks, especially in next week's text. And so, sometimes we refer to Jesus as a prophetic Messiah, one who speaks of a new future, who speaks out against injustices. But Luke isn't just describing Jesus as a prophet. By referencing the fulfillment of that Isaiah passage, Luke is defining the character of Jesus' ministry. Theologian Luke Timothy Johnson puts it this way Jesus will announce good news to those who are poor, blind, and in captivity and oppressed. Luke's narrative will show this messianic program carried out in the specific stories told about Jesus luke portrays his liberating work in terms of personal exorcisms healings and the teaching of the people the radical character of this mission is specified above all by its being offered to and accepted by those who are outcasts of the people this passage This this moment with Jesus essentially becomes the calling card of Jesus, a declaration of his mission to the world, and it will be shown throughout the gospel. Jesus will continue to fulfill and live out this mission in his ministry and in his death and in his resurrection. Jesus is declaring the context for his ministry and the content of what he will do with his life, and again, also with his death and resurrection. And throughout Luke's gospel, starting right here with this text, we begin to get a better understanding of what it looks like and means for us, too, as the church and as individuals, to be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, to bear the fingerprints of the Spirit in our lives. We begin right here at the start of the ministry of Jesus to understand the purpose that we have and what the church's purpose and mission should be. Today the scripture has been fulfilled, Jesus says. And we then have to ask ourselves, how are we part of fulfilling Christ's mission in the world today? How are we bringing good news to the poor, to those who are oppressed, to those on the outskirts of our society, to those who have been outcast? What does it look like for us today to fulfill Christ's mission in our relationships, in our friendships, in those whom we encounter, but also in the way we focus our energy as a church, where our time is spent, where our resources are spent. Friends, we partner with Jesus when we seek to be a part of that fulfillment in the world around us. When the Holy Spirit dwells in us, we are then inspired to do something, to do something with God for our world, because that is precisely how Jesus reveals himself in the synagogue. It is the Holy Spirit, God's indwelling within us. It is the power of the Holy Spirit that comes to us, maybe even just as a whisper in your ear, that comes to us pointing the way towards God's aching world, that invites us ever so subtly if we are listening, but ever so clearly, the Holy Spirit that invites us, whispering into our ear, You, my child, are my beloved. Live today bringing my love to the world, especially to the outcasts. This is how the ministry of Jesus begins. He's baptized. The Holy Spirit descends upon him. He goes into the desert, to the hard place where he's encountered by the devil and the Holy Spirit guides and protects him. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus declares his mission, a mission to the downtrodden. Friends, The Holy Spirit comes into our lives when we have something to do for God, something to do to bring about God's love in this world. The Holy Spirit comes and we are invited to follow Jesus, and following Jesus means following his mission, and following his mission means asking ourselves what it would look like for us To bring good news to the poor, release to the captives, sight to the blind, freedom to the oppressed, and new beginnings to all who have failed. Filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, bearing the fingerprints of the Holy Spirit, this is what Jesus sets out to do. May it be so for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.